The Bible tells us that Jesus will return one day in power and in glory. Until then, how should we wait and live? This sermon is a part of a series on the book of 1 Thessalonians called Living at the End of Time. We hope you enjoy today's message. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 12. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So let me ask you this morning, if you are here personally or perhaps joining us online, is there, a, is there an area in your life right now in which you're asking and you're seeking to know God's will? You want to know what direction you should take? Then can I say to you this morning, you have come on the right morning. That's what we get into. <clears throat> a good number of years ago, I was an adjunct lecturer at one of the Cape Henry Bible schools here on the West Coast. Usually there were 90 to 100 young people there. They were spending a whole year studying the Bible. And I would be up for a week and teach usually one book of the Bible, often the New Testament. It's great fun. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. And somewhere in the, in the middle of the week of lectures, I thought we needed to just kind of pause a little bit, have a little bit of a break. And so I usually would pause and say, let's do a Q&A Q session. And inevitably, I ended up with a discussion about finding God's will for our lives, and what that means. Questions came like, does God have one person for me to marry and picked out already? If so, how do I find them? Will I have a successful marriage only if I marry this person? Hmm. How will God lead me to that person? What if I marry the wrong person? I once heard that as an excuse for getting a divorce. I married the wrong person. Or I would be asked, is there only one job or career that I have to find to fully know God's will? What if I end up in the wrong job? Now, the problem I have with that line of thinking and reasoning, 
that it assumes that God's will is like some life itinerary drawn up by a travel agent. And if you miss one of the vital connections, get a later plane, get on the wrong bus, misread a sign, miss a connection, you are on the spiritual shelf. You are sentenced to live in some, like some second-rate Christian. You'll never get ahead. I will be honest with you this morning. I simply do not believe in that kind of thinking about God's will. My struggle starts right at the beginning of the question. You'll see that just in a moment. Let me read again. Finally, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact, you are living. Now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do more this, to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. This is God's will, that you be sanctified. In the Bible, truth is always connected to ethics. Orthodoxy, which means believing right, is always related to orthopraxy, which means living right. It seems sometimes we are afraid to state that. We are afraid of being branded as legalists. We are afraid of legalism in our own spirit. Absolutes are not very popular today. But Paul is not afraid of this. He stands firmly on the ground that Christian living is neither vague or mysterious. It is solid where it must be solid and gracious and flexible where it must be that. And so he calls us often to recognize and resist the spirit of the world in the form that this world spirit takes in every generation. So Paul says, this is God's will for you. And we stop right there. Almost always we assume that he's talking about making choices. We assume that God's will is always direction, having some divine clarity about the route we take. And this morning I will say to you, when the New Testament talks about God's will in our lives, it is not primarily talking about direction. It is not giving us instructions about how to find a spouse or where to live or what job to take or anything else. God's will is primar primarily talking to us about our character. Nowhere in the New Testament is there a command or instruction to find God's will in terms of direction. Now, some of you instantly may be thinking, aren't we supposed to be led by the Spirit? Yes, we are. But the two occasions that that phrase is used, it refers to resisting sinful impulses that press in upon us, not about decision-making. When we ask about God's will thinking in terms of guidance and direction, we're actually asking a different question. The question we're asking then is, how do I make godly choices in my life? That's what we're asking. So let me take a brief moment and detour you down through that question with some headings, just an outline. They need to be fleshed out in much greater detail. It's not a checklist for you this morning, but kind of a process that we can walk through in our lives. Then we'll come back to the main question in the passage. So how do I make godly decisions? Let me give you six things to consider very quickly. These are headings. Godly decisions, which means good decisions, always lie within the truth of scriptures. God does not and cannot lead us into something which is outside the parameters of his truth. 
by the way, it's, it's really inadequate, I would say to you, just to kind of open a Bible and look for a verse, any verse to guide us. The Bible is not like some kind of a genie in a magic bottle that we rub. The primary purpose of reading the scriptures is to develop and to nurture and cultivate a Christian mind. And it is a mind formed by the scriptures that helps us to choose with wisdom and with confidence. At the um, risk of upsetting some of you, I don't know if I will, but let me head into this anyway with some fear and trembling. You remember those little boxes of promise cards that used to be popular? Some of you remember those? They had all kinds of verses lined up and you picked one for the day. If you've got one of those, could I very gently suggest that you put it on the top shelf and leave it there? Because they are verses without context. The use of these promise boxes, just opening the Bible, finding a verse and pointing it to it, is at the very least suspect. Can I say to you instead, read a whole chapter. Read a whole book. Or if you want to know the wisdom of God, every day for a whole year, read the chapter of Proverbs for this day. This is March, this is March the 12th, right? Yeah, we are. So you should be reading Proverbs chapter 12. The next day is the 13th. You should be reading Proverbs chapter. When you're finished and you're into the next month, April, start again at chapter 1 and read it through a day, a chapter a day for a year. I guarantee you that will let you know the wisdom of God. Secondly, we have to pray for wisdom. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, will be given to him. When it says in James that we ask and pray for wisdom, that does not mean direction. Once again, it means the character of Christ. A third process, we get Christian counsel. We ask older and wiser Christian friends. We invite them to speak into our lives when we're at some crossroads, and we have a critical decision to make. And so you can ask people to covenant with you to pray about a decision you faced, about a job, about a career, about a relationship, about marriage. So the, the decision you make will move you towards the character of Christ in you. Understand they're not deciding for you, but we ask for their advice. We need to listen to that. The next thing is we look honestly at the gifts and abilities we have. What has God given to us? How does he want to use these things? More than likely, God will work with the personality and the gifts we have because he's given them to us. And to add to that, we look at the circumstances we're in or what we're faced with. Circumstances are not above God's word. They're always beneath God's truth. Circumstances do not violate or negate God's truth in any way. The word always stands outside the influence of circumstances. Circumstances may limit our choices. That's a reality. And then lastly, we have to decide and act. On the basis of all of the above, we act. We make a decision. We have been nurturing a Christian mind. And so we, so we act with courage and with assurance. We believe that God is with us and goes before us. I used to say to the students at Cape Henry, if you get on the ferry and leave here and go back to Vancouver Island, if you turn left, where is God? 
He's in front of you. If you turn right, where is God? He's in front of you. So whether you turn left or right really doesn't matter a whole lot. God has given us minds with which to think and let us, let's use them without timidity. God does not intend us to be paralyzed, immobilized, rather to move forward, to move forward with courage and convictions. But we ask, what if something's wrong? Are we destined to live in the spiritual backwater, somehow in the garbage pile? Not at all. If we make a mistake, God can fix it. One of the marvelous acts of God in our lives is that he can take our mistakes and failure, failures and use them for our greater good. As you know, Harriet and I again were married almost 55 years ago. We were married three weeks and we came to Canada. We immigrated right away. Three weeks married, we had $200 and we had a suitcase each and no job to come to. And we got on a plane in Presswick and landed in Toronto. What if it didn't work? We were waiting at Presswick Airport to get called onto the, the plane. And my dad, um, who was a very quiet kind of guy, he was kind of a left brain Scottish introvert. Now you know who I am. <laughs> didn't share his emotions a lot. But I knew he loved us. He gave us a hug in the airport and said, if it doesn't work out, just swallow your pride and come on home. Think about something in your life that seemed to be a mistake at the time. As you look back, you might see how God used it. He may have done that in your life more times than you know. So we can choose with courage. We can decide with backbone. We can walk forward in faith, believing that God is in the decision that we made. Now let's go back to the main flow of the text. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. You see, God's will in our lives is not primarily about direction. It is about character. It's about holiness, as we've been singing this morning. Holiness is the reason and the impulse for God calling us by his grace into this new life. That's why God called you into his family. This new life in Christ also means a new lifestyle. Ephesians says to us, for he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Later in Ephesians, to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of our minds, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Well, the book of Hebrews, do you know this verse? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Holiness is the goal of our redemption. Paul goes on to explain your sanctification, which means our personal holiness, living the kind of life that pleases God. He'll explain that in just a moment. Sadly today, it seems even amongst Christian leaders, it seems that charisma is often more important than character. Skill is more important than spirituality. Success seems to be more important than sacredness. So God takes the stuff of our lives, 
We call it temperament. And instead of us being some passive prisoners of who we are, helpless victims of our past, or a casualty of our circumstances, spiritual character is forged into holiness by these choices. Let me summarize it for you this way. One sentence. Spiritual character is forged by the holy choices we make when faced with life's challenges, both as opportunities and temptations. Spiritual character is forged in those, at times, difficult times. God calls for us to recognize and resist the spirit of the world and the form that that world spirit takes in each and every generation. Holiness is neither fig or fuzzy. Paul makes it in a moment clear and specific. It's very detailed. And so he gives three examples for us in his book. He gives sex, church relationships, and then work. And it's no surprise to us to see that these are actually related also in our generation. We face the same challenges as we live in the last days. They are the daily battleground in which we're challenged to live and to see Christian character forged in us and holiness begin to take shape. Let me touch down on them briefly this morning, realizing that each one of them needs so much more for greater expansion. But they call each one of us to make holy choices in these areas. So we're called to make holy choices about sexuality. Paul says, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. And that is that you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Paul says God's will is that we'll be sanctified, and he explains what that means. We should avoid sexual immorality. And then he talks about controlling our own body. That's a very difficult phrase in the text, um, one that's got all kinds of problems to it, technical difficulties, how you translate body. Without going there, I think we get his point. Greek cities, Roman cities, were known for their immorality. Paul says you avoid that lifestyle. And he makes two fundamental practical principles. One, he says, sex has a God-given context, namely heterosexual marriage. And secondly, sex has a God-given style. It comes with holiness and honor. If you remember back to our recent series on the Ten Commandments, when the children of Israel entered Canaan, they were commanded to cut down the Asherah, crude sexual symbols. The reason for this was that there was the expectation, the demand, that this covenant nation of God was to have a different ethic regarding sexuality and marriage. In a foreign land, they were to live like God's people. Our culture has its own Asherah today. Sexual symbols that have to be cut down to indicate that God's people, his holy people, now live by a new standard. So in a culture that has disconnected sexuality from intimacy, has become lost in a quagmire of sexual meaninglessness, can the church be the one place, perhaps the only place, that can recover and exhibit the true joy of sexuality? Let me ask you, do we want our young ladies to learn about fashion and sex and relationships from the latest escapades of today's young Hollywood starlets? 
Do we want young couples in the church simply to live together before marriage because everybody else seems to be doing it? Do we follow the norms and the statistics of our day? Or do we have the courage, men and women and young adults, do we have the courage to live by the word? So in our sexually polluted culture, does the church believe enough in the instructions from God through the Holy Spirit to recover, to teach us holy choices in the area of sexuality? Wendell Berry says in one of his books, he said, safe sex is a lie. He said, sex was never designed to be safe. And what does safe sex mean? Well, it usually means protecting yourself from your partner. So we need to ask, if we do that, how can the foundation of intimacy, how can you have a foundation of intimacy if you have to protect yourself from your partner? How can we recover the sanctity of sexuality? In spite of popular opinion, the Bible and Christianity is anything but anti-sex and anti-physical. Our faith begins in the incarnation. The word became flesh. And so we reject a false dualism that separates spirit and body. That's a whole sermon that you need to understand the trap of dualism. So we need to go back to the garden and ask God to breathe into every part of us so that every part of us can become a living being. Can we recover today the holy choice of fidelity? What must we do to raise the bar of the meaning of marriage as a covenant commitment so that we are not ashamed of this intimate partnership? I say this with sensitivity, knowing that some of you have been through the pain of divorce Staying together is where we make holy choices. Staying faithful is where we say no to every diversion. And we say yes to the one thing, the one person to whom we've committed our heart and our body. Marva Dawn, in one of her books, talks about singles in the church. And she asks, how much do we affirm their social sexuality by being affectionate with them without innuendo, complimenting their beauty with honor and respect, standing by them in tough times, and including them hospitably in our family feasts and activities? That's a good question. You need to think about it. How much do we include our young single adults? What do we do to teach sexuality to our young people? To prepare people for marriage? Making holy choices about not living together before marriage and intruding too early onto that sacred territory? How can we increase our support for marriages? How can we welcome singles into authentic friendships? Our testimony will have little or no credibility if our lives seem a little different from anybody else's. If the church cannot and will not teach and model sexual moral righteousness today, let me ask you, who will? Who will? Can we make these brave, holy choices that are required, that must be made, 
if we're to live like believers in these last days. And then Paul says, you make holy choices at work. Sorry, at church, at church. The church must be the one place where men and women feel safe with one another. Safe as brothers and sisters in Christ in the community of faith. Verse 9. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. We know what this says. We know what this means. It echoes the command of Jesus, that new command to love one another. So he says, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Reminds us of the challenge of 1 John. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. To do that, folks, is a holy choice. None of us are perfect here. We know that. We know that we can say words of gossip that tear down, or we can say words that encourage and build up. We can make a holy choice to shrug our shoulders or step up and be involved. Outwardly, holy choices are about obedience. Inwardly, holy choices are about love. You understand that? Outwardly, holy choices are about obedience, but inwardly, holy choices are about love. I think it seems to many of us that the default mode in our lives is either selfishness or apathy. Love is a choice, a holy choice. How will we choose to live towards one another at Central Baptist Church in these last days? That's a holy choice. It is making a holy choice to live like believers. And then we make holy choices at work. I recall a number of years ago in another city, casually mentioning in conversation um, with someone, the name of someone who went to our church. And this person sort of looked at me, a little puzzled, and said, how do you know them? I said, oh, I'm his pastor, and he goes to my church. I'll never forget his response. He said in an outburst, you're kidding me. At work, he's lazy, and a liar. I'd love to get rid of him. That just stabbed me. But more than that, Paul says it stabbed the body of Christ that tore the fragile, invisible fabric that gives shape to the church. Verses 11 and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. The point cannot be missed. Our integrity, whether it's seen or not, the words that we say or don't say, the conversations in which we are involved at work, outside, the choices we make when it would be easier to gossip, honesty in financial affairs, how we relate to members of the opposite sex at work, how we give time to our employer, especially when perhaps we work largely on our own. Or if you're an employer, how do we treat those who work for us? All of these and more are the places where we make daily holy choices. 
D.L. Moody, who was a famous evangelist like Billy Graham, but a previous generation, said, character is what you are when no one is looking. The issue is not impressing people, but rather working before people that ultimately brings respect not only to us, but also to the name of Christ and the reputation of his cause in the world. I do not expect non-Christians to live like Christians. But I expect believers to live like believers. When we are to pursue as a man and woman of God, what do we pursue? Paul says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And that kind of character, folks, is forged and formed in us in the arena of holy choices. Each day for you, for me, may be a battle. Each day may be a fight. But the reward is the good name for us. And more than that, it is the good name for the cause of Christ. So I ask the worship team to come back. I invite you to stand. I said at the very beginning that God's will was not primarily related to seeking direction, but rather related to developing character. One last thought that might bring these two eyes, two ideas closer. The more these holy choices deepen our lives, the more they form spiritual character in us, and the more they move us towards this process of transformation the more they etch holiness into us. And perhaps then, just perhaps, the easier we will begin to find the process of seeking direction and spiritual decision-making if we let character be forged in us. So if you're facing and working through a decision of your life as a prerequisite to how you make holy choices, we might go a long way if we look deeply into those areas of character and ask, how are we doing in choices? Here's a verse that many of you will know. Romans chapter 12. I urge you, brothers and sisters, please, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All of that, folks, and more, is the cultivation, the nurture of a Christian mind, learning to think Christianly. And sometimes we stop there, but you have to finish the verse. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. And when you make decisions, make them boldly, with faith, and with courage. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening. And we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings, in person or online. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.